We are in Exodus chapter 34 this morning. If you've been with us, you know that we're going through um, some of the key parts of Exodus, and the name of the series is um, Echoes from the Exodus, the journey of the church so far. And what we're doing is we're connecting the journey of Christ Community Church and God's people with, um, with the journey of the Exodus. Now, it's not one-to-one, and we recognize that. There are some echoes and there are some shadows there. And the most important thing that we are, we are seeking to see is how this is really all about Christ and it was from the beginning. If you remember from the first two weeks, the first sermon that we did was, was about God dwelling with his people. And that is the most important thing in all of eternity. And we forget that, don't we? And we let other things kind of crowd in and make us forget that, that God longs to dwell with his people. And what was so beautiful that we saw is that even though uh, the people of God were in the wilderness, who was with them? There got to be a Christian in here somewhere by chance. God was. Every step of the way, the Lord was leading them and protecting them and guiding them in this theophany. And theophany is just a fancy word that just means a a presentation of God's presence with his people. And that presentation was the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And remember how we talked about it It had to be massive because there were 2.5 million people. And it had to be large enough for the people in the back to see it so that they knew too where they were going and that God was with them. Amen? And then the next week, we saw that God is the God who provides. And they found themselves in some difficult situations, not even a month and a half out of being in slavery, and they began to grumble, didn't they? It didn't take long, just like it doesn't take long for you and I. And they began to grumble because they didn't, they thought there weren't enough graves in Egypt, and they thought that Pharaoh was going to kill them, and then God delivered them in this beautiful Red Sea crossing. They sing this amazing song, and the song is hardly done before they're crying about the bitterness of the water at Marah. And what did the Lord do? He struck him dead, right? End of story. Shorter Bible. We're not here. No, he had Moses take a stick, which I don't necessarily know why he had Moses particularly take a stick. I'm sure there's something symbolic in that. And he dropped it in the water, and the water became sweet. Not just neutral. See, that's the thing, and we didn't really preach on that part, but that's the thing we often miss. He didn't just make the water palatable. He made it sweet. And so we also saw that they got hungry at some point. And instead of going to God, who they knew loved them and had delivered them, instead of going to him and saying, hey, Lord, I know you love us, and we're in a pinch here, and I don't know which way to go, and you've guided us this far. We trust you. What should we do? No, they didn't do that, did they? They said, hey, we should probably kill Moses and Aaron because they're jerks and they've drug us out here, and we can go back to Egypt and eat all that great food we had in Egypt. How quickly their memory is distorted because did they have great food in Egypt you think? No, they weren't enjoying the culinary delights of another culture. They were getting the worst and the bottom of what was left. And so the Lord, again, he struck them dead, right? End of story, shorter Bible. No, what did the Lord do? He said, make them come out before me so that they know that I am here and that I'm going to feed them with manna in the morning and quail in the evening. And in fact, I'm going to make sure that they have more than enough so that they can enjoy a Sabbath day of rest even in the wilderness. How good is our God that not only does he provide, but he provides even such so that we could rest. And rest not only in the imperfection, but in his perfection. And we saw that that was a beautiful picture of Christ who in John 6 says, 
Not that I bring you the bread of life, but that I am the bread of life. And so the great thing that the Lord provides is the means by which we could dwell with him. You see how all this is beginning to connect together. So this morning, the thing that we're going to look at is this wonderful and beautiful passage that I have. I don't know what, what it is about this passage, but I've been dwelling in this passage for better part of a year. And I don't think that I'm only reading five verses in my devotional time. I read more than that. But for whatever reason, this passage has so compelled me because it is God's confession of himself. It is God telling us exactly who and what he is. And it is so important, I hope you heard it this morning in Psalm 86. It's mentioned in a litany of Psalms and other places all throughout Scripture. This confession is repeated again and again such that it becomes creedal. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful passage um, about who God is. And if you ever visit my office... I'm going to give you something because you're not going to say anything to me. You're just going to think I'm weird. There's a painting on my back wall. And if you walk in my office and you look at that painting, you're going to go, Cameron's weird. It's a painting by Salvador Dali, which will make you think I'm even weirder, right? But Salvador Dali had a friend who wanted him to come to Christ. And he thought that the best way to get Salvador, Salvador Dali to read the Bible was to get him to do these paintings about the Bible for this thing called Bibliotheca Sacra, or Bibliosacra? Bibliosacra. My wife bought it for me, so that's why I know this. So Salvador Dali painted this Exodus 34 passage. And it's wonderfully abstract, and you would never necessarily get that. I had Josh come in the office and say, Josh, what passage is this from? And he stood there for a while. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to need some help. So then he turned and grabbed Bonnie and said, Bonnie, come here. What do you think that is? And Bonnie was like, looks like gibberish to me. I don't know what it is. So, but if you ever come to my office, that's what it is. I'm not as weird. Well, I may be weirder than that, but just so you know. But I am just compelled. I'm drawn to this because when it is God speaking about himself, I think we should pay very much attention. And not just that he's speaking about himself, but the circumstances. Here's the backstory. The people of God had just committed adultery. Do you remember what they did? What did they do to commit adultery against the Lord their God? They, as soon as Moses disappeared into the cloud, panicked and said, we are lost now and we need a God we can follow. And what they were really suggesting is a God they could control because they were afraid of the one who had descended upon the mountain in thunder and lightning. So you remember, Aaron was all too willing to be their huckleberry. And he took all their gold and he threw it into the fire. And guess what came out? A golden calf, which becomes significant if you read the book of Kings, um, for the idolatry that comes later on in the north. And so here is this golden calf. And they're, in fact, they throw this incredible party. And in fact, it was probably a not very good pagan-looking Gentile-like party. And Moses comes down the mountain, you remember, and he's got the stone tablets in his hands. And he had just pled for the people's lives, if you remember, because God said, I'll wipe them out and start over. I'll give you a new group of people. And Moses reflects Christ in this beautiful way. He says, no, Lord, don't kill them. And he begs their pardon. He comes down, though, and he hears all this noise and all this revelry against the Lord his God. What did he do with the tablets? He smashed them because he recognized the law had been broken and the covenant was rent by their adultery. So God kills them, right? 
Not all of them. He does judge many. And that is something that we have to recognize that even in the midst of God's grace is his justice. And that's a hard thing for us to bear. And that's what we're going to see here this morning, that while God is all the things he says he is, he is also just. And if he were not just, there would be no grace. And that is an important thing for us to hang on to. So the main truth that I want you to get from this entire service here this morning is that God is merciful, gracious, patient, steadfast in love, faithful in, and forgiving in both word and deed. God doesn't just say he's going to do something. He's not a God who makes empty promises that can't ever come to pass like all of the other little G gods that have come before and after him. He is actually the one who can make it happen. And that is important for us to remember because I think the fundamental question inside every single one of us is this one question. Is God good? For every single one of us that believe in him, that is the question that we run up against probably the most, especially in those moments of darkness, especially in the valley of the shadow, especially when things begin to come apart and we begin to suffer. The real question is, is God good? I was talking with a friend last night uh, who's been through some things and he and I were sharing and I remember a season that was um, particularly difficult and hard. And I hope I never walked through a darker valley. Um, my mother had overdosed. And um, this was back in 2001. And she um, had called the day she died. And I happened to answer that. I happened to be providentially at my grandparents' house. And she, uh, I answered the phone and I didn't recognize the voice at the time because she was in such distress. And I said, uh, I answered the phone and the lady on the phone, which was my mother, said, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong number. I just called to speak to my daddy. And when I hung up the phone, I realized who it was and it was too late. Within a few minutes of that phone call, she was dead. And then a week later, her father, my grandfather, passed a week or two later. And during that same season, my wife's ex-husband called and threatened her and the children as we were trying to adopt them. And then a month or two later, my grandmother died with dementia in a hospice. And so it was interesting, the guy at the funeral home also had family members that thought there was some giant pot of money that my grandparents had left, not realizing they had exhausted everything. Um, and so the funeral home director said to me, he said, I've never seen anybody go through something like this in this time frame. But what I will tell you is in many occasions during that season, what do you think the question I had was? If God exists, is he good? And let me tell you the beautiful thing, the conclusion that I have come to and that I cling to. Yes, yes, he is. And that is unfortunately a taste of life in a fallen world. But if there were no God... If there were no goodness at all, what hope would any of us have on this great big old spinning ball of darkness? And so that is the thing that we have to be willing. And is God big enough for you to ask the question? You better believe he is. In fact, it shows that he's worth something to you for you to ask the question at all. Isn't that right? I mean, when we don't care about something, we don't ask questions about it. Like for those of you who don't care anything about the Georgia Bulldogs, you don't ask questions about how Gurley did yesterday or, or, you know, Sonny Michael or any of those guys. You don't care, right? It's the things that you care about that you ask questions of. 
And so when we say, is God good? That's not evidence that your faith is coming apart at the seams. That's evidence that you are actually living in an in, in actual close, very close proximity to God. And he loves that his children would say, is he good? Because guess what he's going to do? What's he going to be faithful to reveal? A resounding and eternal yes. So keep that in mind as we turn to the text here this morning. Exodus chapter 34, we'll read verses 5 through 7, and then we'll jump in. Hear God's word this morning. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, being Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now why is that significant? Why would God come down and say his name? Well, he did that to let Moses know. He's, he's confessing his covenant name so that Moses would know exactly who he was and exactly what this event was. Verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. I love, I don't know what it is. There's something about that. The Lord passing before Moses, who had prior to this begged to see God's glory. And what did God say to him? No man can see my glory and live. And he put him in the cleft of the rock. And he passed before him such that he could only take his backside glory. And even the backside glory was so significant that it made Moses' face to shine. And so here he's passing before him and he's proclaiming exactly who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let's stop right there for just a second. Now here God is stating all that he is. And we could, we could take weeks to look at what each and every single one of those words means. We're not going to do that, so don't be afraid um, right now. Um, and so, but I would encourage you in your time of devotion as you go out from today at some point to take each of those words, and you'll, we'll see this some in the application today, but meditate on how God is uniquely each of those things. And how God is uniquely each of those things in your life, in your family's life, and in Christ's community's life, and in the life of the kingdom of God's people. It's a beautiful thing to do because that act of remembering and thinking through does something to our faith and our hearts that nothing else will do. It's worship, isn't it? To take and think about those things and how beautifully he says he does that to thousands. And another way of saying that, he does that to a myriad, an untold number is another way to phrase that. And so God goes on as he's confessing. He says, but he will not by any means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now that's a troublesome passage in a sense because it makes you wonder if you're thinking like I am, was he making the children pay for the sins of the fathers? Well, let's be good exegetes and see, does another passage in Scripture help us out on this at all? Well, if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, one of the things that was going on in Ezekiel is people were going around saying that God, in fact, inflicts the sins of the fathers on the children. Does that sound like justice to you? Or grace? Or all the other things that it said that God was? No, that's not. doesn't sound like that to me either. And God makes it very clear, I am not punishing the children for the sins of the fathers. 
In fact, my desire is that you repent and live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What a good God that we have that would say that. Now, but what does that mean this passage means? Well, what it means is that God's justice continues. That if the sins of the father are passed on to the children, which often they are, how many of us who uh, struggle with alcoholism received that from the generation before? And the generation even before that, and even maybe the generation before that. As my great-grandfather was a moonshine runner in North Carolina, it runs deep. And so, so what he's actually saying here is that he will not, just because he's just in one generation, forget his justice in the next generation. There's also something else potentially being said here that I want to be careful. I wouldn't necessarily die on a hill here, but, but I do believe it to be true as far as other passages are concerned. God is able to say, just as he is to the ocean, you must stop right there. He is able to say to sin in the midst of the generations of his people, you can only go so far. Notice that he says, my grace is to an untold many, thousands but sin just follows for three or four generations. Now, that's not an exact number, but what I want you to hear God confessing is that he has said to sin, you can only go so far. Now, why is that good news for you and I? For those of us who live in the midst of addiction uh, like I have and grown up in it and been one and, and, and been just overwhelmed by it, if God had not said that it would stop right here, I am powerless against it and will be all the days of my life left to my own devices. And so I am thankful that the Lord says to sin, you can only go so far. And where did he say it most prominently? Where did he in history put it down in such thundering terms that no one could deny that it's reality? On the cross. When the, when the temple, the, the veil in the temple was rent and torn in two and Christ said it is finished and all began to, to come apart and recreation began in some sense through the resurrection itself. This beautiful moment in which God said to sin, you will dominate my people no more. And you can only go this far. And his provision of his perfect son who paid the debt that we cannot pay for, for the one who said to, to, to sin in our lives, you will not continue to overwhelm and lord it over my people. That is good news, isn't it? And so I am thankful that God even here is echoing and shadowing what is to come in that. But again, he must be just. He's making it very clear that while he is loving and while he is gracious and he is merciful and he is faithful and he's steadfast, there still comes a time when he must be just. But here's the other good news. How quickly does his justice fall? I had this awesome conversation with a guy. Um, it's hard to tell the whole story because it's, it's fairly long, but he was a guy at the rescue mission and uh, he weighed about 350 pounds and he hated me. And he had a loose wire in his pacemaker, and he's the meanest human being I've ever been around in my life. Really was. And I've been around some really mean people. And so his name was Glenn Taylor. And Glenn Taylor um, would sleep. He would sit right on the front row. And don't any of you try this, by the way. But he'd sit right on the front row, look hard at me, and go to sleep. And sleep through every sermon I preached for a year. And then he was out of the mission, and he, was, he did all kind of things to burn all kind of bridges. He was just a curmudgeon. He was a terrible person. 
And so one day I get a phone call from him. And I know his voice because he sounds like John Wayne. And he called and he says, hey Cameron, this is Glenn Taylor. And I thought, what in the world? And he says, I need some help. I said, you sure do, Glenn. You need a lot of help. And I, my immediate thought was, I'm not, I'm not about to waste my time. I'd read When Helping Hurts. This didn't look sustainable. This, this was terrible. It was, a bad, it was a bad deal. It was a bad investment. Whatever it was, I'd predetermined, I'm not helping this guy. And he said, now look, I've made some bad decisions, which uh, true, yes. And I, I got nowhere to go. So I said, all right, let me call you back. So I decided I would find two friends that agreed with me, and that would be a quorum, and we'd be done with the story. The two friends I called, they agreed with me, but there was one friend that didn't, and his name's the Holy Spirit, and he wouldn't let me go. And he said, I want you to help him. I said, but yeah, I don't mean to argue with you, Holy Spirit, but come on, man, this looks like a bad deal. So we put Glenn up in this motel, Scottish Inn, and uh, for several weeks we sustained him, and he came to church one day, and I pulled him aside, I said, Glenn, you don't have to do this. I'm not helping you so that you would come to church. It's not an exchange, man. I know who you are. He said, no, no, Cameron, I really, I want to come. So it was near Easter, and um, Keith Watson had preached on Isaiah 53. And so, so Glenn and I go to lunch, and Glenn says, now, Cameron, I've got to be honest with you. If my dad came to me and said, I'm going to kill you, I'd tell him, I'd say, Dad, that's a terrible plan. I said, but what if, Glenn, your dad came to you and said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. But... Your death is going to mean the untold salvation of thousands upon thousands of family members of yours. And you get to rise from the dead because you're not guilty. And you will get to dwell with them in eternity. Would you do it? He said, well, yeah, that's a pretty good plan. And then he said, well, how come God doesn't kill more jerks? I said, Glenn, because you're a jerk. And me too. If a guillotine fell as quickly as we thought it should, we'd all be gone. He sat back and he looked at me and he said, well, I'm as close to being a Christian now as I've ever been. Good news on the story, we got him in a place called the Brother Brian Rescue Mission in Birmingham and he became a Christian and is now their manager at the rescue mission and is doing quite well even with that loose wire in his pacemaker. And so, but, but my point in saying all that is this, when we cry for justice, when we demand that someone else pay for their sins, what are we forgetting? God's patience with us. Think about 2 Peter chapter 3 where the people are clamoring saying, where is your God? If your God was so good, why would he let all of these terrible things go on in the world and keep going on and keep going on? How does Peter respond? That is the Lord our God being patient and merciful. Because to him a day is as a thousand years, and he longs that the family would be full in heaven. Amen? Praise be to God that our God is patient and kind, because you all, I am, evidence of that patience. And so, here, God must be just, but even his justice is patient and kind and merciful. Here's what Tony Morita says. Um, in exalting Jesus in the Exodus, he says that Moses wanted to know God's glory more. So God proclaimed his name to him. This shows us that to know God's glory, we must know something of God's attributes, God's perfections, God's nature, as he revealed them to us in his word. So again, if we 
when we hear people say, hey, I want to know God, I want to be closer to God, where, where do you do that? You do that first and foremost in engaging his word in the variety of ways that we have available. Personal study, meditation, prayer, um, uh, uh, Lord's Day worship, Bible study, small group. All of those things are so available to us. And think about it. What do you struggle with the most? Cracking it open in the first place. You want to know God, but you don't want to know this God. Be careful that you recognize that the Lord has revealed himself beautifully. From Genesis to Revelation. He gave it to us in a way that we could truly understand. He gave us the means of grace so that we could, in the parts that we don't necessarily understand, we would have a means and a way to figure it out. Amen? And he's not done something cruel, which is tell us only part of the story. He's told us the whole story. We have even the end. And you may say, but yeah, have you ever read the book of Revelation? That's tough sledding, but not 21 and 22. It's not tough at all to know that one day every tear will be taken away. One day all pain will end. One day the, the question, is God good, will be answered for an eternity, and we will revel in it. Amen? All right, so verses 8 through 10 say this. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. What a beautiful response that, the, that God comes in and confesses clearly who he is. And Moses immediately recognizes and responds. Notice what he does. His posture is a posture of great humility. And he bows his head to the earth because he recognizes how small he is against this infinite backdrop. And he worships this God who has just confessed himself to him. And then he does this and he says, and he said... I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. I love those words. It's not just forgive us for our sins, but to take us for your inheritance. Be our Father. Be our covenant Lord. Stan K. Evers in Christ in the Exodus says this, that Moses is encouraged to pray for pardon because of God's declaration of his grace and his love. What a wonderful truth that that is. It is because of who God is that allows for and shapes Moses into the mediator that is but a shadow of the great mediator who Christ will be. So here Moses is crying out to the one that he knows will actually forgive the people. He knows whom he is now speaking to and he knows what he can ask for. Do you? Do, do you know who you pray to? Do you know him to be all of the things that he confesses and says that he is, that he is merciful and gracious and patient and kind and steadfast, loving, forgiving thousands, but still being just? Do you, do you know that God as you pray to him? Is your, are your prayers reflective of your knowledge of him being all of those things? Great question, isn't it? It's a question that I've been wrestling with for a long time now. And it's really shaped and transformed and healed lots within me. It has transformed what I expect from God. Instead of expecting the wrong things, I now expect him to be all of those things. 
And it has been a joy to serve a God who is all of those things instead of the distortion of God that I had so long ago when I would ask the question, is God good? And so, it is incredibly important for us to know this God in this way because think about how you parent. For those of you who are parents, think about how you, how you will parent your children based on whether or not you believe this to be true because you will someday discover, like we did, that there comes a point that you have no control whatsoever. It is a shadow. And all you're trying to do is fool your kids into thinking that the facade is real, that the scarecrows can actually scare the birds away, knowing all the while that it is a bad deal on your part and that there better be that my hope is in the God who is sovereign and gracious and loves them more than I do. Now, I'm not abdicating my parental responsibility. What I'm saying is I wish I'd known this sooner. I would have parented completely different. I would have, I would have parented with much greater grace. I would have been much more truly just as a reflection of God, my Father, especially knowing that He could make up the difference that I could never, never cross. And so I would say to you who are parents, look long and hard at who Christ is. For those of you who are single, some of the toughest years of your lives, no one likes to hear this, by the way. I hated hearing it when I was single and in college, but some of the toughest years of your lives are right now. And if you don't know that this God you will make a litany of very bad decisions searching for God knows what. And so as you know this God, you will recognize that you don't have to hurry and you don't have to make rash decisions and you don't have to throw away all that is good for the sake of some fleeting security that ain't secure at all. And for the rest of us, this is just good for us to know, isn't it? Because it affects how we live. Look at what God does in response, verse 10. And he, being God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, whom, among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Do you recognize what God just did? The people have committed adultery. They have severed themselves from the Lord their God. His justice has fallen. Many died in that moment. And he just renewed the covenant with them. And not only did he renew the covenant, look at what he said it would do. It would draw many nations to him as well. I will do a work in your midst that many who are among you will see. So here's God confessing that not only is he good, but he's missional, and that he longs for not just those people, but all people to come to know him. His desire is to dwell among all that he created. And so, yet again, we see just how truly God is. And that in his confession, we have grand assurance. The thing that has often troubled me, and many popular writers actually put this forth, one of which I genuinely love, and many of you may genuinely love, but his name is Brennan Manning. And oftentimes, Brennan Manning has said that Jesus saves us from the Old Testament God. And that's devastating. That's just not true. 
Now maybe Brennan was saying it as some form of conjecture, and that's not exactly what he believes, but it is what he said. And many of us have read Brennan and been blessed by Ragamuffin Gospel and Ruthless Trust and all the things that he's written, but you need to be careful that you don't allow anybody to take from you this confession of who God really is deep in the Old Testament from eternity past. It is the God who has always been. And we've got to remember that it is not God we're being saved from, but God whom we are being saved to. Right? And, and so often I think that we think, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. I got that. But I wonder if I could hear your prayers if it would sound like that. I wonder if I could see your lives if it would look like that. Or if it would look like something different. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, and I want you to see how this comes forward into the New Testament. This is, I'll, I'll be brief here. And I want us to think about how we can apply this to our daily lives. Now, this is a passage that many of us know. It's often quoted, at least the 16 part, not necessarily the rest of it. But hear God's word again this morning. John chapter 3, starting at verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that good? God so loved what he had created that he wanted them to be able to be near him, so he, he sacrificed his own Son as the mediator, as the means by which they could be restored. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So right away, God's saying the guillotine will not fall as fast as you all think it should. And that's good news for all of you. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now that, brothers and sisters, is actually true freedom. For those of you who have wrestled with addiction or some sin that kind of went on for a while and you tried to hide in darkness as you ran from the light, as I did many times? Was there freedom there? No. As I have come into the light and all that has been washed away in Christ through the blood of Christ, through the risenness of Christ, through the ascension of Christ, through the eventual return of Christ, as all that has been dealt with, it is an amazing thing to know that now I can breathe. And I didn't know that I wasn't breathing. And I didn't know how heavy the load was when I was in the darkness. But once I stepped into the light, it was amazing how quickly God became merciful and good and loving and steadfast and forgiving to thousands upon thousands. And my, my comment to all of us is maybe there are some of you here who are walking in darkness. And you're living maybe two lives. And the strain of it has about destroyed you and the strain of it has you questioning whether or not God is actually, in fact, good. No, God is good because the strain is there. And if there were no strain at all, you would be hell-bound without a shot fired. And so if you're feeling that tension between the light and the darkness this morning, the thing that I would say to you is step into the light and be free. 
For those of us who have stepped into light and are free, we're here to love you, not judge you. We're not here to condemn you. That's not what Christ came to do. For those who are condemned, they're condemned already. I don't, there's nothing for me to do. There's nothing for any of us to do except love you into the light. And my desire is that you would know in full this confession that God has given in Exodus 34 and that you would come to know just how much God loves you and how good God really is. So as we close out with these last few things here, I want to say these words to you. And they're in the bulletin. But to those who confess a need of forgiveness and restoration, here's the good news to you. God is merciful and gracious. There's so many of us who struggle with needing to feel forgiven because we've done something, we've made some mistake that we feel like is impossible to surmount. To you, I would say, you don't have to bear that burden. God will because he is merciful and gracious in Christ. To those who struggle to get it right and you desperately want to, and you don't seem to be able to get it right most days, here's good news for you. God is slow to anger. He is not going to immediately slap you across the face. And for some of you, you may say, well, yeah, but I wish he would sometimes. And maybe he does, and you just didn't know it was from him. But if you just can't get it right, know that God is slow to anger, and Christ is the great evidence of that. And to those of you who fail to be faithful as you feel you ought to, and you've, you've failed and you desperately want to be part of the family, but you just feel like, man, I just... I just feel like my faith is so weak and I don't match up to the faith that other people exhibit and it's just embarrassing. Here's good news for you. God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness to generation upon generation upon generation. And it's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your perfection. It's about His that was purchased on your behalf to make you such. Amen? And to those who are unrepentant, Here's the bad news. God will by no means clear the guilty. If you are unrepentant and you don't think you need a Savior, you will die in your sin. And you will pay the penalty for that sin. And the wages of sin are these, this, death, and eternal judgment from the Lord our God. Thanks be to God that he is patient and kind and that you are here this morning and you've heard different. You have an opportunity to repent and to live if the Holy Spirit is stirring within your heart to call you. I love this quote from W. Ross Blackburn. He says that the moment when God is most completely made known in the Father and in the Son is the moment when simultaneously mercy is extended and judgment is executed. Now you may say, well, that's kind of weird that you would think that's a great quote. But when does mercy get extended and judgment get executed? At the return of Christ. When Christ returns... There will be no more repenting. It will be finished. When Christ returns, there will be no more sorrow or hurt. Those that are justified in him will receive the fullness of the blessing, the true mercy. And so my prayer is that for each of us, that, that, is, what we would, that, that is what we would long for, the, the day that there would be a last funeral, the day that sin would be told you can go no farther. Amen? So what is your confession? What do you confess about God as you have seen what God has confessed about himself? Have you seen all of the ways in which he is all of those things? I would encourage you to meditate long upon it this Lord's day and even in the days to come. And even I would challenge you as parents to make a practice of teaching this to your children so that they would come to know the language of even God the Father as he speaks of himself. 
and help them to understand how they can see these things because sometimes we just don't have the eyes to see, do we? And we need somebody to step in and say, but wait a second, I don't think it is what you thought it was. This is really where God has been good and you didn't see it and that's okay, but now you see it. As William Faulkner said, the moment of is, the moment that something actually happens is not often what we understand it to be. It's only when it becomes was that we realize what it was really about. And so, let's encourage each other in the truth of this. I want to read one last time from the Scriptures. This is Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14. Here again, how the psalmist recognizes the beauty of this confession and notice how he applies it. So hear these words as a blessing this morning. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet again, that confession. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How good is that? How good is that, that that is what our God does for us as people. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you remember that we are but dust and that you remember our sin no more because of who you are, not because of who we are, not because of who we want to be, not because of who we could become in and of our own strength, but because of who you are and who Christ has made us to be, sons and daughters of the Most High God. God, I pray that your people would have the courage today to look long at your confession of yourself and to walk through each word and meditate on it, and to think long and hard about how you have been all of those things to them as your sons and daughters. God, let us not forget or move on from this powerful truth, this powerful reality that you are loving and steadfast and merciful and kind and faithful to keep the covenant even when we commit adultery left and right. God, thank you that you long to dwell with and preserve your people and that you've done it in Christ. In Christ's name, amen.